On today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, I will be talking once again about the 101 coaching mistakes to avoid as enumerated by Thomas Leonard. Um, today we go through from numbers 31 to 40. Don't miss it. Here we go. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Hi there, and welcome back to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. My name is Doug O'Brien. I'm very happy to have you here with me today. We are talking, we have been talking, we are talking again today about the 101 coaching mistakes to avoid. This is a group of suggestions, if you will, compiled by the great late Thomas Leonard, the late great Thomas Leonard. Um, and funny that I should be speaking of him as late. He's right on time. Actually, he hasn't been late for years. He's all in one place, staying at the one time. Uh, being late is a euphemism for the fact that he's dead. Um, we'll talk about euphemisms uh, later in today's uh, list of 10, 100, uh, called from the 110. We're going to cover 10 of the 101 ways. So we're going to be covering numbers 31 through 40 today. And as we get into the bunch of them today, we'll discover why I was talking about euphemisms. It's, I believe, number 38 or 39 in this list here. Um, a little spoiler alert. But anyway, getting into this, just before I start today, I just do want to say Thomas Leonard was amazing. He was truly amazing. His, his level of output in the few years that he was doing this coaching creation was just, just astonishing. Um, and that being said, I think, you know, sometimes these aren't you know, like coming down from on high. They're, these are These are perhaps fraught with a few personal biases of Thomas's. I noticed that certainly in the, the uh, I think I told you before in earlier podcasts about this thing called the clean sweep process that Thomas came up with. The idea is there's a hundred different questions in four different categories, like, for instance, personal expenses, finances, um, health, uh, relationships, that sort of stuff. And you go through all these questions in these four categories and you give yourself a score and you try to make that better. You try to get that towards a hundred if possible. I will, I will admit here on the air or whatever this is. Um, I don't know if it's air precisely, but nevertheless, I will, I will speak out loud the fact that I will never get 100 on that clean sweep thing. I just never, ever, ever will because I just don't care about some of those things <laughs> that apparently were very important to Thomas Leonard, but um, not so much for me. So um, sometimes that's true too. These 101 coaching mistakes are usually really, really good ideas, really good things to avoid. And then every now and again, yeah, maybe not so much. And I'm going to leave that to you to decide. I will do my best to stay clear of opinions about this, although I will probably state a few. <laughs> I'm known to do that. Um, but I, I also want you to get as clean as possible a representation of what Thomas meant. So you can take that or leave it for whatever you want to do for that. 
So um, with no further ado, mistake number 31, using the clients to get emotional, your emotional needs met. Um, What Thomas is saying here is he said, if you're getting high slash really excited about your client's successes, you might be getting your needs met vicariously through their success. He says it's cool to feel great or happy for the client, but if your mood is altered significantly up or down, you may be getting some of your own personal needs met by the client. Remember, your coaching is over at the end of each session. The results are a great byproduct. So I think that's true. I think that's true. I, I don't think I've suffered from that too often, but I can certainly see where that's uh, a factor and that's something you'd want to avoid. Why? Because it's kind of like being a doctor. You know, it's kind of like being a doctor. I remember uh, an old joke, old, old joke, um, saying uh, basically the, the thrust of the, the punchline was that the doctor couldn't operate on this particular child because it was his or her own child. The, the joke was about, you know, the gender of the surgeon. Everybody thought, oh, it must be a, a man, but it, how could it possibly be the child? Anyway, it's, 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 it's a dumb joke. It's an old joke. But, but the idea is this. If the surgeon is too invested in the patient, can't see them kind of objectively, it's my son that I'm operating on, whatever, that's too much. It's too dear, too important. You need to have a certain sense of objectivity, a certain sense of detachment. In Ericksonian hypnosis, we talk about the idea of being both at the same time. It's not one or the other, it's both and. So you can be attached and invested in the client's success and detached from it at the same time. You know, invested and not invested at the same time, attached and not attached at the same time. You want them to do well, obviously. That's the point. That's why they're here. But if you're getting high on it, if you're going like, yeah, I am the best coach ever, then maybe you're a little too invested, right? So that's something to watch for because, you know, as a coach, as a therapist, one should have a coach. One should have a therapist. One should always be making yourself the best person you can be. It's like that old story about... um about Gandhi. You know that story about Gandhi where he was, um, I think you know the story, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, there is an old story about Gandhi where uh, a woman brought her son to Gandhi, who was a big fan of Gandhi. So he went to Gandhi and he said, I want you to tell my son to quit eating sugar. It's bad for him. So Gandhi said, okay, I'll do that. Um, thank you for coming. Come back in two weeks. And he got up and left. And the woman was like, what? Why couldn't so she comes back in two weeks and Gandhi comes into the room says quit eating sugar to the little boy and starts to walk out again and she she said hold on there um, Gandhi how come you couldn't have said that two weeks ago and he looked at her and said because two weeks ago I was eating sugar so the idea is that we want to be at our best as well. And if we're getting too invested in the client's needs and we are perhaps not being, you know, as detached as we can be because we're not, you know, at our best, we're we're living vicariously through them. I believe that is the idea, something to watch for. And that's coaching mistake number 31. 
coaching mistake number 32 is needing credit for the client's successes. Now, yeah, it's kind of the same thing, only different. So to say that you need credit is slightly different than what we just talked about. I'll read what Thomas said, and you can see for yourself. Thomas writes, coaches never really know exactly how much their coaching contributes to a client's success. He says, I found it easier to seek or take no credit for my client's success than trying to figure out the difference my coaching has made with a client. He says, I used to feel slight, slighted when my clients didn't appreciate or recognize the full value of my role and my wisdom, but that was just my stuff. He says, be happy for your client's success. Don't seek credit, even if your role was absolutely key. Now, yes, sounds familiar, doesn't it? But there is a slight uh, uh, attenuation, a slight difference, a slight um, distinction that can be made here. Because previously, um, it's, it's about your emotional needs. I'm getting my, my vicariously emotional needs. That it's, it's a kind of a, a deeper, less mature thing. Whereas this is about, you know, getting credit means it's, a, it's an ego thing. I don't know if it's a very fine distinction, but it is there. It's really there if you stop and think about it. Either way, maybe you just put them together and say, don't do the, either of these things. Just make it simple. Um, but it's, it's a, I think it's a really great thing to just know that you are, um, you are a, a, a kind of a catalyst, right? You are a cat as a coach, you are a catalyst for their success. Being around your energy or being around the, the energy that you put off, put off is a catalyst. A catalyst is kind of like thing that causes change. It's a, it's a, a catalytic converter. The things convert because of the catalyst that's there. It's a thing in the chemistry that, that causes other things to transform in itself. It doesn't do anything. It's just there and its presence makes things happen. Um, that's kind of what you do. By having these conversations, this weekly presence, by, by living your own best life, by not eating sugar yourself, you know, um, you become that example. Milton Erickson, one of the things that was so great and amazing about Milton Erickson is that he had done such great things. He overcame polio with his own use of hypnosis. You know, he, he accepted his uniquenesses. You know, he was colorblind. He always wore purple. You know, he accepted that strangeness about himself is like, okay, that's who I am. But he was so great that just, you know, being in his presence often was therapeutic enough. You want to be like that. You know, you're asking questions, you're delving, you're seeking truth, you're, you know, being you to the fullest and allows them to be them to their fullest as well. Coaching mistake number 33, Thomas's number 33 is using cliches and jargon. He says, we all use cliches and jargon to some extent, so it's simply a matter of frequency. The problem with personal development jargon is that it confuses one party and or weakens the discussion because you're hiding behind jargon. So use a non-jargony mentor coach to replace jargon with simple words and replace your cliches with fresher advice. Jargon puts people off. Cliches make you sound dumb. I will say, personally, as I've 
gotten older, has been more as I've gained more experience. That's a nice euphemism. As I've gained more experience, um, I've I've noticed that sometimes, sometimes, not not always, but sometimes, you know, younger, newer coaches type people, not always, but sometimes, sometimes, um, tend to use jargon. Or perhaps that's just they're using different jargon than I'm using. That's fair. Um, maybe that's true too. You want to avoid that. Whatever your level of experience is, jargon is just, it, it just makes you sound dumb, honestly. It sounds like you haven't really done your homework, so you're just spouting off the, you know, the sound bite. So you, you, you want to be talking from your deep truth. And jargon spouting things off with, with jargon expressions. And you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, something to be avoided. Let's just say that. I'll leave it there. Coaching mistake number 34. Falling into the I am the coach, you are the client, listen to me trap. This is a power trip. Thomas writes, he says, some clients like it or need it, but it's remedial coaching and create a dependency, can create a dependency. If the client is that resistant, find out why or work on an easier goal. Modern coaching is a collaborative partnership. Collaborative partnership. You are co-creating with your client. You're co-creating. So if they're resistant, and I, I remember my dad used to say things like this, because I said so, right? You've probably heard that expression in your life as well. Why? Because I said so, do it. Because I said so, I'm the coach. Yeah. Um, as he points out, some people actually need this. But it's still not going to be really great for their ultimate uh, personal empowerment, which is ultimately what you're here for. You know, right? It's not really about their success because you made them that way. It's about them becoming all that they can be. Success will happen. They will be successful when they are fully all that they can be. You know, it's an interesting thing. If you've ever read Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, then you know what I'm about to tell you. Um, Stephen Covey, when he wrote that book, did research about you know all the different kinds of self-help books that came before. And he noticed that for like the first couple hundred years, let's just say, for a long time, um, of self-help, it wasn't about, you know, win friends to influence people or speak, you know, it wasn't about success per se. It wasn't about doing something. It was about becoming a better person. Benjamin Franklin, as an example, if you read his uh, um, autobiography, you'd know that Franklin had what he called his 13 virtues, 13 vir virtues, things like truth and um, punctuality and stuff. Why? Why 13? 13 virtues. Where did that number come from? There's, you know, 10 commandments. There's, you know, 12. To, you know, why 13? What did he come up with that for? Because there are 52 weeks in a year. And 52 divided by four is 13. So what he would do is he would focus on one of these 13 virtues every week. It'd be like <clears throat> my punctuality week or my truth-telling week or whatever. He would focus on one of those virtues every week for a cycle of, of 13 weeks. And then he'd start over again, do it again, and do that four times a year. He did this to endeavor to become a better person. 
because the idea of self-help back then, and of course, remember he wrote things like, um, oh, what was that called? Pennies. Oh, gosh. You know, you can look it up for me. Um, Benjamin Franklin had this thing that he wrote, that he had these little sayings and like a penny saved is a penny earned. I went to Benjamin Franklin's grave in um, in Philadelphia and there's, it's covered with pennies it's because people put them. He said this penny saved is a penny earned thing. So um, he, he was into self-development, self-help. But the way they did it back then was to develop your personhood. Coaching is the same way. It is, it is really like we said before, it's both. We want success, yes, and we'll take steps to do that. We'll help strategize to make sure things get done so you achieve things, yes, and ultimately be a better person so that they learn how to do those things. They learn how to overcome the obstacles that would stop them from doing that in the first place. So we want to be that catalyst for change. We want to be that um person that inspires things, and we help them to discover it as a collaborative partnership, not I'm the expert, you're the student, do what I say, and you'll be okay. It's not the relationship we're looking for here. Mistake number 35, underestimating the client's abilities. Thomas writes that his view is that humans operate at 20% of their capacity creative, intellectual, emotional, spiritual. So there's lots of room for improvement, lots of potential. He says, I ask far more of my clients than they would ever ask of themselves and keep asking until they say stop. You never know how much the client can do and you'll, until you push them to go far beyond their limits. Don't play God and ask your clients to do only what they feel they're ready for. That's bad form. Now, this is one of those things where, again, um, I think Thomas kind of contradicts himself a little bit with some of these other things, because I, the next one is um, don't expect too much from the client. <laughs> That's number 36. It's like, whoa, time out there now, Tom. Um, so, yeah, but it is also true. I know it's true for me that, you know, I, I, I don't live up to my capabilities, it's hard to live up to your capabilities. We're capable of immense things. Did I ever tell you a story about my playing the piano to get into Carnegie Hall? Did I ever tell you that story? Let me tell you the story real quick. It was the most scary thing I ever experienced in my life. I, I was um, given the opportunity. I was a piano major in college and then uh, went away to London for a year to study at a conservatory and came back. And, and I played a pretty damn good senior recital with some, you know, modern classical piano music in there. And, and I guess my composing teacher was impressed because he asked me if I would play his new composition for piano called um, Transmutational Etudes. He'd been invited to have a piece performed at a concert for new composers, modern composers at Carnegie Hall the following year. And so he said, gosh, Let's get that piano piece played. This kid's pretty good. So he came to me with an offer. He was a fantastic pianist as well as a great composer. And um, he was perhaps the best pianist at the school, although he didn't teach piano, he taught composition. But he said that he would give me piano lessons for free for a year. This is postgraduate study. If I would play his pieces for him at Carnegie Hall and say, oh, no, Carnegie Hall, I would never want to do that. That was my first response. 
not. It was, it was like, holy Toledo, that'd be great. So I said yes. And, um, and we got to work. And so the first lesson, he just sort of took me through this very hard. The etudes are exercises. They're meant to be like, whoa, that's pretty impressive piano playing. Um, they're meant to be that. And so they were. And um, so he took me through and gave me some uh, pointers as to how to approach them, how to practice them, et cetera. And, um, and that was very, very, very interesting and very good. And then I said, okay, I've got it. I will go practice. And I, I went away and I, I did practice, you know, every day for a week, but I also did other things too, like eat and sleep and, you know, hang out with friends and, you know, whatever a 20 year old, 21 year old college student, um, perhaps recently graduated college student would do. And, um, I went back the following week for my second lesson and it wasn't very good. It was pretty, uh, well, not good. And about five minutes in, literally, literally I, I didn't get far. I, maybe five minutes into the lesson, five minutes into my playing, trying to play his, his pieces, he stopped me and started to yell at me in ways that I had never been yelled at before. And bear you in this in mind, I, I had been yelled at before. My father was pretty good at it, but he usually gave up after like five minutes or so. He would, you know, you know curse me out and then, you know, storm off or whatever. And, and But this guy took it to a whole nother level. He he kept it up for the whole remainder of the hour lesson. So probably approximately 50 to 55 minutes of really creative and loud yelling. Um, so... By the end of that lesson, I, I left there and went kind of directly, I think it was, to a uh, practice room to start practicing these pieces again and um, did with a great deal more focus. And, and the following week, I spent a great deal more time in those practice rooms at the college, um, really focusing and practicing hard on these things and, and, and stuff. So the following week, when I went back to my third lesson now, with a great deal of trepidation, I, I, I slinked into his room, said, oh, I'm down here, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I sat down and started to play. And after about five minutes, he stopped me. And uh, I was terrified. I thought he was going to do you know, something worse than the week before. And, and he did. He did something far scarier than he did the week before. He sat in silence for a minute. It seemed like forever. His chin was down, you know, sitting in a chair, in his chair, his chin was down. His, his hands were kind of in a prayer position up to his eyes, and he was looking down as if he was trying to think of the best way to really yell at me this time. He probably exhausted all the possibilities from last week, so he was really trying to come up with something new. But he didn't yell at me. He very quietly, after a, it seemed like forever, looked at me, raised his head, looked at me and said, all right, O'Brien, now I know what you're capable of. I will accept nothing less. And I just, oh my goodness. Uh, I would use very many euphemisms at this point, but I will just say I, um, <laughs> I said basically to myself, oh, 
poop. Um, I just realized what I had done. I had set the bar like really high. And now I was being told I needed to jump over that height every week for the rest of the year. And that's, of course, what I did do. And so that was great because I played Carnegie Hall that following April very well, I will say. And it was a quite remarkable year of learning. So everyone, I think, is like that. Everyone can operate at a much higher level than they're, than they're doing. And our job as a coach is to help them do that. I'm not saying you should do anything like my piano teacher did, but um, yeah, maybe <laughs> up to you. But again, Thomas Leonard's 36 is expecting too much of the client. This is mistake number 36. Don't expect too much of the client. That would be wrong. So he writes, how much should or can you expect of a client? If you're not sure, ask the client. They'll tell you. He says, I've found that I often would expect my clients to be as quick as I am and to make huge changes in minutes. I was frustrated. The client stressed. He says, every client has a natural pace that they can handle or sustain. Find out this. Find out what this is. That seems really weirdly written. Find out what that this I don't think he means that. Find, I'm pretty sure he means find out what that level is that they can handle or sustain and adjust your coaching expectations accordingly. Or find out if the client wants to accelerate the pace as a coaching goal itself. So, yeah, that's a fine balance. You don't want to underestimate the client's abilities, but you don't want to expect too much of them either. There is that fine balance. I had a running coach once who was amazing at this. He was just so amazing at, at calibrating what the individual runners in his um, in his charge needed from him. You know, there's some some of them needed a lot of praising and encouragement. Other people needed just like, well, oh, that's pretty good. Is that the best you can do? You know, kind of a little sneer on his face. And and it seemed amazing, uncanny, how he would just know what the people needed. And some of them really needed a lot of encouragement, and some of them didn't. So you want to find that balance. Find out what's needed of the client. Don't underestimate their abilities and also don't expect too much of them. It's nice to know you can do both. Coaching mistake number 37, teaching concepts without context. This is, I'm going to read six statements that Thomas wrote here under this lesson. Here we go. He says, how can you teach attraction without teaching about personal foundation? How can you teach love without teaching acceptance and forgiveness? How can you teach success without gratitude? How can you teach strategy without vision? How can you teach coaching without wisdom? Whatever you teach, include the context that gives it meaning. It seems like a poem to me, you know, doesn't it? Just, I could just leave that one there. I'll read it one more time. It's, it really does sound like a poem to me. It sounds like a, like the paradoxical commandments poem thing. It's kind of nice. Which if you don't know, uh, I can read that to you later. But uh, let me just read this one more time. How can you teach attraction? Sorry. Start over. How can you teach attraction without teaching about personal foundation? How can you teach love without teaching acceptance and forgiveness? 
How can you teach success without gratitude? How can you teach strategy without vision? How can you teach coaching without wisdom? Whatever you teach, include the context that gives it meaning. We are teachers, aren't we, as coaches? We are mentors, we are prodders, we are cheerleaders, and we're teachers. I think some of the best teaching comes with the self-discovery when they discover this for themselves. But we do that together. We, we in a kind of Socratic method, perhaps, uh, ask the right questions, you know, guide in the right direction so they can make that discovery. We want to have that context. We want to have that deep understanding to allow that to happen. It's kind of like that old one about, you know, just having the, the jargon and that stuff. You don't want jargon. You want the deep concepts as well. Coaching mistake number 38, ignoring or missing the client's clues. Thomas writes, clients will tell you everything you need to know about them and what's most important to them. If you will learn to listen for this instead of coaching so much. I didn't read that very well. Let me try that again. Clients will tell you everything you need to know about them and what's most important to them. If you will learn to listen for this instead of coaching so much. Clues to listen for. Flip comments. The truth resides behind these. Euphemisms. The truth is opposite of what's said. Silence. The truth is there waiting to be articulated. Dissonance. The truth is either one or the other. When in doubt, ask the client to keep talking until something gets clear. I believe it is in the next one. I won't read forward to, to find out, but it, it is, I think, in the next coaching mistake where Thomas talks about that we are in the truth-telling business. That... Um, yeah, it's not therapy. Coaching is not therapy, but it is truth-telling. It is owning and, and accepting and acknowledging truth, reality. Because without accepting or acknowledging reality, you really you can't do an awful lot. That's where the jargon stuff comes in. You know, jargon is often about magical thinking or whatever. It's a slogan rather than reality. We deal in reality. We deal in reality. So we need to listen for what's going on with the client and, and, to, and to pick up those clues. So when a client makes a flip comment, find out about that. Well, what do you mean by that? You know, if they, may, if they use a euphemism, which we'll get to, the next one is mistake 2039 is, is accepting euphemisms as truth. We'll talk more about them in a minute. But the truth, he says, is the opposite of what's said. That's really interesting. Um, insight or conjecture that the truth is the opposite of what's said. Interesting, isn't it? So when people make these flip comments or use euphemisms, hmm, be aware that that is a clue that they're really sort of avoiding something of the truth that they need to accept and look at. Your job is to help them do that in a way that is not scary, you know, that they can accept the reality that's there. When you do that well, you do some great coaching. Listen also for silence. What are they not saying? 
The truth is where they're not talking sometimes, waiting for it to be articulated. And then there's the dissonance. You know what cognitive dissonance is? It's a thing where you have this like eh, feeling about stuff that the, the truth is in the feeling. It's like these two, two things just aren't bouncing. There's a dissonance. It's not a consonance. It's where there's a nice harmony and things are gelling, working well together. But the dissonance like eh, it just doesn't feel right. So listen for these dissonances where feel, if feelings are out of sorts and listen for what's really going on. Find the truth in these things. When in doubt, ask the client to keep talking until something gets clear. But use these as clues and be like, you know, a, you know, a, a, a dog sniffing out a bone or something, you know, hunt for it, find that truth. It's really important. Coaching is not always about, you know, getting them to do something by Thursday at six o'clock. It's, it's about discovering the truth that will set them free. Coaching mistake number 39, accepting euphemisms as truth. Just for the record, you know what a euphemism is, don't you? It's, it's a saying, it's a phrase that isn't really saying what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? It's like saying um, the dog passed over. The dog has um, met its great reward. The, the dog has um, gone to the dog house in the sky. He's playing at a farm upstate. Now the dog's dead. The dog died. <laughs> so it's like saying grandpa uh, passed wind. It's like, no, he farted. That's what happened. He farted. So euphemisms are expressions or sayings that are um, not saying the truth. So Thomas writes, sometimes clients put a positive spin on stuff they might not want to get into with their coach. But it's the coach's job to pick up on this spin and ask the client about it. Here he says, here we go. Remember, clients are in the truth business. Clients are in the truth. I mean, sorry, 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 sorry. Coaches, you, coaches are in the truth business. Anything less than the value of coaching diminishes. If you don't Get what your client is saying, speak up and ask them to speak more clearly. Often they will want to point this out to you and bring it out. So euphemisms, I'm between jobs. No, you're out of work. You're unemployed. Get a job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Speak the truth. It's liberating to speak the truth, to say what's, what's really going on here. It's this right? It's liberating, and you can work with it. It's the reality of the of the thing that's in front of them. When they can see that, when they can accept that, they can work with it. And finally, for this week, coaching mistake number 40 of the 100 coaching mistakes to avoid by Thomas Leonard. Coaching mistake number 40 is using a patronizing or parental tone. Some coaches' tone isn't clear and clean. It carries a charge or a weight to it, which gets in the way of clean communication. Sometimes a coach takes a patronizing tone, speaking to his clients like children or idiots. Is this you? You won't know unless you ask five clients and five colleagues the question, is there any trace of patriotism or patron, patronization, sorry, patronization or parenting in my tone? That's uh, thus quoteth, quoth, 
<laughs> That's Thomas Leonard writing it there. So I'm sorry I didn't read it all so good. So well, and um, don't do this. <laughs> don't be patronizing. It's really interesting, by the way, that he suggests that you ask five clients and five colleagues about this to find out if there is any of this. We often don't know what our own tone is. We don't. We think we might think we're being one way when we're being something else. So it's useful to ask, useful to ask. Am I being patronizing? Am I being like a parent in my tone? Ask, ask folks. And why, why do you think it's uh, important to avoid this? Because it's a co-creation. You, again, like the expert, I'm the coach, do what I say from before, which, again, is kind of similar, you know, with some of these little bit overlaps. Some of these are absolutely brilliant. And, uh, frankly, he did so many of them. It's amazing when he got to 100, you know, 98, 99. They're still great. It's amazing, this work of Thomas Leonard. So as much as it is, it might be a bit similar to the uh, just don't be the coach, I'm the coach, do what I say. Some parents are like that, but other parents are different than that. Some parents aren't great parents. <laughs> you know, you, you want to be a coach. You are a coach. So you're not the parent. You don't want to be patronizing. You are co-creating. You don't want to be my piano teacher and yelling either. It's an interesting relationship, interesting thing that you are. You are a coach. It's different from all those things. It's a unique position that you get to co-create and play with people. From our first interview with David Buck, you know, the first interview I did in this series, you know, he, he worked directly with Thomas Leonard for years, kind of his right-hand man. Um, said, you know, coaching is, is, is like when you're kids playing games, you know, let's play. Let's, let's, let's make this something happen. We want to play. You know, it's about co-creating together. That's what a coach does. And yet there's more to it than that because it is than just playing. It's more than just playing. You know, as a coach, you are also a, a person who's been there before. You know, you're also the wise one who can say, hmm, what's really going on? Listen for the truth and be the, the sage that helps them discover it for themselves. Perhaps it is being parental. Maybe that's what the best parenting should be. I, I, I admit that I was raised by amateur parents. Um, <laughs> Dave Dobson used to call, you know, parent, people amateur parents. Said, so, you know, everyone was raised by amateurs. Nobody had any professional parents. So um, they made mistakes. They're doing the best they could with the resources they have. But we are coaches. So in that way, we have higher expectations of ourselves. And so we can be as good as we can possibly be. And by avoiding these 101 mistakes that Thomas Leonard outlined, we can be better. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again. We will go cover some more of these things. And we have some wonderful interviews already lined up. Just wait to hear what's coming up. Stay tuned. Thanks. See you again soon. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me. 
If you want any more information about today's show, please visit our website at www.essentialcoachingskills.com. Be sure to tune in again next week for our next episode and discover even more about the systems and the secrets that set the best apart.